Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. My name is Ray Hunt. Obviously, it is a very, very distinct pleasure to introduce our speaker for today's lunch. Uh, this is, our speaker is a man that I have known for many, many years and someone for whom I have the utmost respect. Rex Tillerson is a native of Wichita Falls, Texas. He joined Exxon Company after graduating from a university down in Austin uh, that some people know about. And uh, he is now the leader of what we all know as Exxon Mobil Corporation. I won't spend, I won't waste time on the facts that everyone in the room is already familiar with, such as Exxon, if it was a sovereign nation, would, its GDP would uh, be comparable to some of the largest uh, countries in the world. It operates in over 200 countries on six continents, and it is the largest public company in the world based on market capitalization. Um, let me see, there are hundreds of other bits of data, some of it important, some of it trivia, which people would find fascinating about ExxonMobil. And if that is the case, you can go to your computer and pull up more information than you ever really cared to know about this absolutely remarkable company. And remarkable is the biggest understatement of the day. Now, as to the introduction, instead of my comments being on ExxonMobil, the company, they will deal with Rex Tillerson, the man. Rex's father was a scout professional, scout professional, which means that he was a full-time paid employee of the Boy Scouts of America. Thus, the Boy Scouts of America has been a big part of Rex's life since he was born. He has served in a number of volunteer positions over the years and recently served as president of the Boy Scouts of, of America nationally. Rex's father is obviously extremely proud of Rex's many contributions and important contributions at a challenging time to this truly, truly great organization. Rex is an Eagle Scout and his youngest son, Tyler, is also a Eagle Scout, an Eagle Scout, as well as recently becoming a Scout professional, as was, as was Rex's father, and both Rex and his father, uh, Tyler's grandfather, are extremely proud of that. I mention this fact because I once heard a speaker who was addressing an audience of young people who made the point that uh, when you as an adult are preparing a CV or some summary of what you did in high school or some summary of what you've done with your life, you will not, you will not list on your CV 
any of your high school activities, and this is a guy speaking to a bunch of young people, he said, you will not list the fact that you are president of the junior class, captain of the football team, or even editor of the high school newspaper. You will not list that. However, the speaker said, if you were an Eagle Scout, that is the one accomplishment from your high school years that you will list on your CV as an adult because of all of the leadership traits that accomplishment conveys. After hearing that speech, this was a number of years ago, I had, I've had the occasion over the years to see the CVs of some rather distinguished people. And to a person, virtually every one who was an Eagle Scout has that listed on their CV. Now, introductions of speakers are typically pretty dull, as they usually consist of information that everybody already knows. In an attempt to avoid that trap, I will mention just one aspect of Rex's life that the average person is probably not aware of. Rex's wife, Renda, was an extremely accomplished barrel racer, probably still is. And for many years, she and Rex would load up on the weekends the horse trailer with her horse on a Friday afternoon and head out to whatever city was on the rodeo circuit that weekend. Rinda was a remarkably gifted barrel racer and highly respected in that rodeo event. And that's a challenging event for those of you who watch that. In my opinion, one reason that Rex Tillerson remains such a humble yet effective man dealing almost daily with oil ministers and heads of state of major countries around the world is that he remembers the fact that his sole contribution to Renda's success as a very accomplished barrel racer was for him to drive the pickup truck that pulled the horse trailer behind it. <laughs> and that's true. I had the pleasure of working closely with Rex for three years when our two organizations were partners in the early days of the development of oil and gas in Yemen. Yemen was one of the 10 poorest countries in the world at that time and had a lot of problems. However, you learn a lot about yourself in that kind of environment. Rex subsequently graduated and went to dealing with all the challenges that ExxonMobil was facing in Russia, where everybody else had failed, yet Exxon succeeded. And that, in turn, led to a series of other things which ultimately has led to Rex being the head of ExxonMobil today. Ladies and gentlemen, with that as only a minuscule glimpse into Rex's background, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today's luncheon, a man of extraordinary talent and corresponding humility, my good friend, Rex Tillerson. Thank you, Ray. You know, one of the great attributes of Dallas 
are its remarkable citizens. And I, I think you would search high and low, far and wide to find an individual. And I would be remiss if I didn't include his wife, Nancy Ann, in terms of a person who has contributed so much to the success of Dallas and cares so deeply about Dallas's future success, both of them. Uh, Nancy Ann has been a great partner of mine in supporting the Boy Scouts uh, here locally in Dallas. And it is a, it's a real privilege to call someone like Ray Hunt, not just a colleague, but a good friend. And Ray, thank you for that kind introduction. Well, it's uh, certainly a pleasure for me to be here with the World Affairs Council, uh, Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, ExxonMobil's had a long history of our support, long-standing relationship with the World Affairs Council wherever we operate. So not just here in Dallas, but in, in other chapters and cities across America uh, and the world. World Affairs Council, in our view, does a great service in enriching public dialogue and providing a place for in-depth discussion of public policy and a respectful exploration of solutions. <clears throat> now, of course, it's a special pleasure to be here with you today, not just because this area is my home, but because so many uh, citizens here have seen firsthand what our industries, innovations, have meant for our state and for our national economy. In fact, many leaders and companies from the Metroplex have played a critical role in reshaping our nation's energy landscape and with it prospects for the global economy and international relations. So this afternoon, I'll discuss the transformative technologies and risk management techniques that are enabling us to unlock new supplies of energy across the continent. How that energy is bringing extraordinary economic and environmental benefits and why, as we look to the challenges in the decades ahead, we will need public policies that allow us to build on our successes and promote innovations for decades to come. To do this, we must challenge old ways of thinking rooted in the notion that we must ration scarcity, and we must embrace new ideas that respect the roles of industry, government, and society, all of whom must play their respective roles in an era of abundance in energy. From the outset, we must recognize that this is an extraordinary moment in the history and evolution of North American energy markets. More than 30 years ago, my good friend, U.S. Secretary of Energy Jim Schlesinger, declared, and I quote, the energy future is bleak and is likely to grow bleaker in the decade ahead. And indeed it did. We must rapidly adjust our economies to a condition of chronic stringency in traditional energy supplies. Now that mindset of the time of scarcity influenced our nation's outlook on energy security, our foreign policy imperatives, and our optimism about our shared future. In the three decades since, the nations of Canada, Mexico, and the United States have been an example to the world of how trade, cooperation, and innovation can expand energy supplies and lead to mutual benefit and progress. And in recent years, in particular, the energy industry's long-term investments, new technologies, and risk management 
have combined to put North America at the vanguard of an energy transformation that is reshaping global markets. Sources of oil and natural gas, once dismissed as uneconomic and inaccessible, are now reliable, affordable, and environmentally responsible contributors to our global energy portfolio, all a result of industry innovations. In Canada, for instance, we're deploying new technologies and techniques that are enabling the development of that nation's vast oil sands. This resource base now has the potential to provide approximately 170 billion recoverable barrels, enough energy to fuel today's North America personal vehicle fleet for almost 45 years. In the Gulf of Mexico, we've taken the concept of deep water drilling from the drawing board to execution in little less than a generation. And more recently, our industry has come together as never before and made tremendous strides in emergency response and risk management offshore. With these ongoing discoveries and advances, we anticipate more than doubling both North American and worldwide deep water production over the next 25 years. And finally, across the continental United States and Canada, industry innovations are enabling us to unlock so-called new unconventional sources of energy, energy located in the extremely dense geologic formations, oftentimes referred to as shales or as tight oil formations. <clears throat> Advances in horizontal drill directional drilling and hydraulic fracturing are bringing vast new supplies of oil and natural gas to America's economy safely and responsibly. These technologies and techniques are not new to our industry. We have used them for decades. It is their integration that is innovative and game-changing. To put the impact of these transformative technologies in perspective, I would ask you to consider the following. Since only 2008, U.S. natural gas production is up 19 percent. This additional increase in supply is enough to meet 90 percent of natural gas consumed in all of U.S. homes in 2012. And industry technologies have now put within reach enough natural gas to help power the U.S. economy at current demand for about a century. These new technologies have boosted more than natural gas supplies. Domestic oil production is also up sharply. Since 2008, full year end, full year domestic oil production has risen by close to 30 percent. In fact, by the end of last year, production was up, the increment, by the equivalent of nearly the entire output of Nigeria, the seventh largest producing country in OPEC. Thanks to these new technologies, the United States has not only reversed a more than 25-year decline in oil output, we are now the world's fastest growing hydrocarbon region. These new supplies of energy are carrying strong economic benefits, increasing investment, job creation, and growth at a time when our economy needs it most. In 2011 alone, the oil and gas industry generated more than a half a trillion dollars of investment in the form of capital, wages, and dividends. In Texas, the industry's multiplier effect has had a particularly strong influence on job creation. 
Recent economic studies find that new oil and natural gas production has created 576,000 jobs, with about, with about a million direct and indirect jobs predicted by the year 2020. The entire oil and nat natural gas sector currently supports 9.2 million American jobs, or 7.7% of the U.S. economy, and delivers $85 million every day in revenue to the government. Our industry's innovations in oil and natural gas production have also brought renewed hope and opportunity to many areas of the country that were once written off. For the more than 50 million people in the small cities, towns, and rural areas of America's heartland, inflation-adjusted average per capita income rose between 2007 and 2011. At the same time, incomes were falling in U.S. cities. Industry innovations are being felt far beyond the borders of the states where energy production takes place. Energy-related economic benefits are extending to the 32 states without unconventional energy production. New York State, for instance, has more than 44,000 industry-supported jobs with many of those the direct result of the Marcellus Shale development next door in Pennsylvania. Finally, this new era of abundance in energy is increasing America's international competitiveness in sectors once believed to be in permanent decline. Vast new supplies of natural gas are helping revitalize America's steel industry, which will contribute to rebuilding of our nation's infrastructure and automobile manufacturing. And these new gas supplies are also reinvigorating America's petrochemical industry, increasing agricultural competitiveness, and boosting American exports of bulldozers, farm equipment, and other heavy vehicles. Our industry's con contributions go beyond economics, though. The new supplies of natural gas also help our nation meet shared environmental priorities. The U.S. Energy Information Administration has estimated that in 2012, energy-related U.S. carbon dioxide emissions had fallen to their lowest level in more than a decade and a half. What makes this extraordinary is that the United States, if you go back to 1995, the United States today has 50 million more energy consumers than we did in 1995, and we have an economy that is 50 percent larger than it was in 1995. And yet, our CO2 emissions are close to what they were in 1995. In America's energy industry, we believe this is just the beginning. We believe our nation can do more to bring energy to the world. In this historic moment, as we transition from an era of scarcity to an era of abundance, it is important for us to learn from and build on our successes. We must recognize the fundamental importance of investment, innovation, and trade in helping us achieve our nation's economic and environmental needs. To do that, we must understand that industry, government, and society all have roles to play in pressing forward the frontiers of innovation. For our industry, the first and foremost priority is always to operate in a safe, secure, and environmentally responsible manner. We must uphold the highest standards of operational integrity, 
from planning and investment to construction and project completion. This builds trust in the private sector and in industry's ability to deploy new technologies in new ways. In communities across the nation, we have safely and successfully implemented hydraulic fracturing, horizontal drilling, and other innovative technologies. This has allowed the energy industry to create jobs and spur growth. It has also encouraged our industry to engage with the public at a very local level, communicating our wide array of risk management techniques, how we work with state and local officials to ensure industry accountability, and how we minimize our environmental footprint. In town halls and public forums, we are able to describe how we work with local leaders to study the land and environmental impacts where we will drill, how we design and build wells with safeguards in place to protect groundwater, and how we have rigorous standards in place to monitor and maintain wells even after the drilling is complete. And as we identify new questions from the public, we support the use of sound science to inform and construct reasonable regulatory frameworks. Government also has a role to play in innovation. That begins with understanding the role of the private sector. Energy projects are the ultimate long-term investments. The spending patterns are long, even before the first dollar of revenue is realized, and the completion cycles are often long, sometimes to depletion more than 75 years, all along the way requiring reinvestment and reinvestment and reinvestment. The International Energy Agency estimates that the global energy industry will need to invest about $37 trillion in energy supply infrastructure through the year 2035. That comes to about $1.6 trillion a year. Now just think about executing a $1.6 trillion a year capital program. Government is uniquely positioned to enable this long-term investment by establishing sound legal and tax policies. Too often, officials focus on the near-term ups and downs of commodity prices, the cycles that are reflected at the pump. Or they focus on picking winners and losers through subsidies, mandates, or tax provisions. It is far more effective to put stable and unbiased policies in place so business can make sustained investments over these very long time horizons. In addition, the regulatory pathway should provide certainty, transparency, and promote an understanding between government officials and business leaders. Policymakers must understand how legal and policy uncertainty can negatively affect business. They must recognize and weigh the full impact of their oversight on industry, investment, and innovation, and consider the cost of their policies to the economy and consumers against the benefits that are delivered to society. Public policies must be governed by sound science and economic assessments of cost and benefits. The regulatory process should provide a clear and efficient pathway to meet the public's expectations for safety, efficiency, and environmental protection. The proposed Keystone XL pipeline is an object lesson in what can go wrong when decisions veer from this path. This is a project that requires sustained investment and carries the promise of significant benefits to our economy. Yet, despite following the process as set out by our government, 
The project sponsors have yet to obtain the approval to proceed. Since 2008, going on five years now, government and industry held more than 100 open houses and public meetings, gathered thousands of pages of supplemental information in response to questions submitted by state and federal agencies. Throughout the process, the State Department studied 14 different routes, issued a draft environmental impact statement, a supplemental draft environmental impact statement, a final environmental impact statement that totaled more than 10,000 pages. After all this work and public comment, the State Department's own findings indicated that the pipeline would, would pose no undue risk to people or the environment. They found this twice. And yet, as you know, the decision was made to further delay the project, preventing the creation of more than 20,000 construction jobs and more than 118,000 other new jobs for local businesses that would be located along the route of the pipeline. In all the rhetoric, it's easy to forget that Keystone enjoys support from both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans union workers, union leaders, business and industry, as well as certainly the Canadian government. The decision to delay construction was simply a matter of putting politics ahead of an already rigorous regulatory permitting process. Most of the policymakers that I've talked to over the years understand that pipelines are the best way to transport oil and natural gas. And most policymakers are also aware that there are hundreds of thousands of miles of pipeline across North America that have an extraordinary decades-long record of being safe and sound. Now, government can support innovation in other ways, by providing access to resources and opening avenues of trade. With increased access, disciplined investment, and the innovative application of technology, our industry can further expand supplies create jobs, and fuel growth in North America. In the United States, many prospective areas for oil and natural gas lie under federal lands, lands that are owned by the American people, you and me. Yet these lands have been kept off limits to drilling for decades, denying the American people the economic benefit of the development of those resources. Meanwhile, technology has advanced. Across this time, calculators no longer cost $100, computers no longer fill entire rooms, our industry's ability to drill wells in the Arctic offshore or even multiple wells from a single well pad. All of that advancement seems to have been ignored by our government. Today, federal areas on and offshore remain off limits or severely restricted, but many of these resources certainly can be safely and responsibly developed using these technological advances, 3D seismic imaging, advanced reservoir computer models, and extended reach and horizontal drilling, all of these technologies allow us in our industry to see these underground resources as never before, to plan how we will maximize the efficient recovery for success and minimize our environmental footprint. One study by energy researcher Wood McKenzie estimates that forward-looking policies that increase access and expand opportunities for oil and natural gas production 
would create more than a million additional jobs and generate hundreds of billions more in revenue at all levels of government, federal, state, local. In this new era of abundance, the United States will require new thinking in another area. We are now in a position to not only meet our nation's domestic energy needs, but also the potential to become an energy exporter. Who would have thought this possible in a nation where rationing and gasoline lines are not too distant memory for many, and ever-rising levels of foreign imports were considered to be our energy destiny? Economic studies and academic analysis indicate that by allowing exports, we can attract new investments that will expand our own domestic supplies create jobs, and help with our U.S. balance of payments. Of course, a few companies have come out to limit energy exports, in particular in the form of liquefied natural gas, or LNG, which is a supercooled natural gas allowing for its efficient transport by ship. Some of these opponents of free trade are appealing to political leaders who still see the world in terms of rationing scarcity. But there are reasons for optimism. This debate has also prompted a strong and broad coalition made up of hundreds of voices, from governors and trade associations to economists and manufacturing companies who have reaffirmed the value of free trade in energy. After all, energy itself responds to the same basic economics that govern other exports, from American wheat and beef to computers and automobiles. And as we've shown in North America, Canada, Mexico, and the United States, all are stronger because of the energy bridges and trade that have increased our energy security and investment. In the decades ahead, citizens and consumers will also need to be involved in the effort to strengthen innovation. Our public debates and discussions in society at large need to be framed by facts and science, fundamental physics, and basic economics. We must build a renewed appreciation for the timelines required to advance technology, the scale of the challenges confronting us, and the important role of engineers and scientists in driving incremental improvements as well as inventing revolutionary breakthroughs. One of our most important priorities in this effort must be to improve our nation's educational standards and achievement especially in science, technology, engineering, and math. Even as America's energy industry has led the world for the past few decades, there are reasons to be concerned about America's long-term competitiveness. Three decades ago, the United States ranked third among developed nations for college students earning science and engineering degrees. Today, about 20 other countries rank ahead of the United States in these vital subjects. Science, technology, engineering, and math are not just important to our nation, they are also gateways to opportunity for millions of students. That's why in 2007, ExxonMobil led the founding of the National Math and Science Initiative, and it is why we continue to press forward with that commitment today. This initiative is built on the conviction that improving STEM education means supporting teacher training and challenging students with effective curricula. Our goal is simple, to find the proven programs that work 
with measurable outcomes and scale them up in schools and universities all across the nation. We don't need to invent anything new. They're out there. The first program we identified was UTeach, which was originated at the University of Texas. UTeach facilitates undergraduate students who are working towards degrees in math or science to also earn, alongside their math and science degree, a teaching certificate by providing them an integrated degree plan, financial assistance, and early teaching experience. Since its inception, more than nine out of 10 UTeach graduates have become teachers. Eight in 10 are still in the classroom five years later. Now that's compared with fewer than 65% of teachers nationally. And importantly, 45% of those teachers went to work in high needs schools. The second program is the Advanced Placement Training and Incentive Program, pioneered and proven right here in Dallas in the DISD by Peter O'Donnell. This program encourages schools to expand college-level AP courses in high school and encourages teacher training in AP courses. The National Center for Education Accountability has confirmed that when students take and pass an advanced placement course, they are significantly more likely to graduate from college. The results are nothing short of striking. Over the past four years, participating schools have increased their qualifying AP test scores in math and science by 160%, five times the national average. These two successful programs give us confidence that we can increase the ranks of the next generation of innovators. What we need to do as citizens and as society is recognize the role of education in developing future scientists and engineers. And we must have the courage to identify and uphold education standards that boost achievement, even when there may be pressure to abandon them. In the decades ahead, the world's energy needs will continue to grow. And this, too, should shape our approach to challenges of energy and innovation. With nearly 1.3 billion people on the planet still without electricity for basic needs like clean water, cooking, sanitation, light, safe storage of food and medicine, we must realize the need to expand energy supplies has a humanitarian dimension that is often not part of our domestic discussion. But as our industry has proven over the past three decades, we can meet the challenges of the future. With resource access and a positive climate for investment, we can find new technologies, spread them to new parts of the world, and unlock new sources of energy in an increasingly safe, efficient, and a responsible way. With government, industry, and society united, we can all contribute to the national culture of education and innovation and we can ensure the extraordinary advances of the past are nothing more than building blocks to an even brighter future. I thank you for your kind attention. questions for you here. We'll try and squeeze in. By tradition, Mr. Tillerson, the first one is a student's question. Quote, now that hydraulic fracturing or fracking seems to have established itself as the energy technology of today and perhaps the next 50 years, 
What, in your opinion, might be the next technological breakthrough in the energy industry? Well, that's, that's a great question. And what I would tell you is 10 years ago, I did not see this one coming. <laughs> that is what is so exciting about this industry. And it's why, in my comments, we are absolutely committed to continuing developing those bright minds and those innovators for the future. Because it's not the things you know how to do, it's the things that you don't even know you want to do. Those are the breakthroughs. Now, there are a lot of opportunities for incremental breakthroughs, continuing to expand our abilities to work in ever harsher climates, certainly in deeper waters, as we have already done in the Arctic. And there is a lot of technology development to allow us to open the window of opportunity for resources, as I mentioned in my talk, resources that we once thought were inaccessible or uneconomic. What really happened is technology and innovation opened that window and made those resources not only accessible, but also economic. So it's kind of where are the resources? And there are a lot of resources around the world yet to be developed. So I think it'll continue to be across a broad range of technologies, both in the deep water in the Arctic, but also in what we call the unconventional, which I've told others we need to stop calling it unconventional since we've been producing them now for 13 years on the Barnett. It's, I think it's conventional now. But shales and tight, tight formations. And a lot of breakthrough I expect is going to continue to come in our ability to image the subsurface. ExxonMobil invented three-dimensional seismic decades ago. It matured, has matured in so many ways with so many different mathematical modeling capabilities to process that information. And continued breakthroughs in the ability to image the subsurface also then lower the risk and will expose more of that resource to this economic window. So I think if I were a young person, and I wish I was, starting out, because when I went to work, I was still working on a slide rule. Got my first four-function calculator when ExxonMobil bought it for me, a TI-110. Had a square root key. <laughs> Thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> How could I have imagined? Anybody in my generation, how could anybody imagine the way our engineers and scientists would work today? It's extraordinary. They are extraordinary. And I, I stand in awe of our scientists and engineers that work for us and the things they're able to do. So it's an exciting future, and the excitement is I don't know what the next thing will be. I'm counting on you to go find it. In his wonderful introduction, Mr. Hunt referred to your success in Russia. One of the members of our audience would like for you to comment on the future of the Russian oil and gas industry. Well, Russia continues, you know, as a nation to evolve its own economic structures, certainly its own legal structures. Uh, we've been there a very long time. We've been there for a lot of that evolution, and we have participated in it. I would be less than honest if I didn't tell you I've been disappointed with the pace at which things have evolved, but it's a big country with a lot of complexities. They have huge, enormous oil and natural gas resources, many of which are not even known to us yet, but we will find them. So they will always be a very significant and important supplier of energy to the world. Today, they are the largest oil producer, larger than Saudi Arabia. They have enormous gas resources. They have enormous potential to do more. 
and they are limited only by their fiscal and regulatory structures, their rule of law structures. Now, our experience in Russia has been quite good. It hasn't been easy, but I, we entered in a time and put in place contracts before their laws were even written. They were emerging from Soviet-era laws and regulations to their modern day. They have always respected that contract. They could have changed it. They could have tore it up. They could have said not fair. They stuck with it. And I have a lot of admiration for their leadership for having done that. Now we've, and as a result, we've been successful together. So as they move forward, I think the only limitation is their ability to put the right legal, regulatory, fiscal structures in place to attract the significant investments that re are required. Nothing is uh, done inexpensively there. The resources are huge. The investments required are enormous. So you have to have those stability frameworks in place. Their leadership is committed to that. It's how they travel the road to get there. It's sometimes hard for them. I would observe we have the same problem here in this country. We know where we need to go. Sometimes politically we just have a hard time getting there. So in many ways they're not that different than us. So they're, they're going to be significant in the future and I think their prospects are very good. And like a lot of countries there'll be some, some highs and lows, but the trajectory I think will be up. This being a World Affairs Council event, we have a number of questions about other countries. One of them concerns China. It is, given the aggressive expansion of the Chinese oil giant Sinopec, a state-owned corporation, and its recent establishment as a global oil player, how does ExxonMobil plan on competing with the company or other companies that are owned by foreign governments? Well, it's, it's a, their, their role and their participation globally uh, has now, they've been there now for a few years. And about a decade ago, when we would sit around and have our strategic discussions, that was an emerging issue as we're, we are beginning to see entities that were created to manage the national resource, today known as national oil companies, who were created largely to work domestically, now leaving their borders, equipped with funding from their government and certain directives to leave their borders and go out and now begin to participate in resource acquisition and development globally. And so I think what you see uh, has happened in kind of that first decade, uh, and it's not just the Chinese because the same can be said for a lot of national oil companies, is that they have tried a lot of different things and what they seem, most of them seem to have figured out that the best way to go out there is to find good partners, both from the risk management standpoint but also in learning how you manage the complexities of operating in a country where your government's not calling the shots and somebody else is. So we, we have never seen that as, particularly as a threat, whether we, see it, whether we see it as an opportunity. Where are there places that we might partner together? Because uh, oftentimes we want to mitigate risk too. And so I think that's generally what you see across the industry. They will continue to be active because China is a huge consumer of energy. They do not have sufficient resources, in our view, domestically to meet that need. And I think it's entirely to be expected and reasonable that they would fan out across the globe and participate broadly. That's good risk management. Get yourself involved in a diversity of offshore resources, offshore being outside your country, so that you're not overly dependent on any one country. 
something goes wrong here, we're, we're involved elsewhere. So I think their approach and their strategy has been one that's quite sensible, quite predictable. Uh, they do operate at a probably a different level of economic expectation than those of us who, who have to perform for the, the uh, equity markets do. But that's okay. It just puts a lot of pressure on us to be even better and make sure we always have something of value that we can offer that they're unable to offer. We also have a number of questions about countries to our south, in particular a question about Mexico. We recently saw an election of a government which appears to be a reform administration. How do you assess the opportunities in Mexico and the government's likelihood of perhaps opening their industry to ExxonMobil and other companies? Well, I think the, the current leadership and certainly the, the prior leadership was fairly open about their view that Mexico had to, has to move to a different place with respect to its domestic energy policy and the development of its own resources. It's, as many of you, if you know history of Mexico, this is a highly emotional issue with the Mexican people. 1938, nationalization of the oil industry. We were down there. Everybody was expropriated, kicked out of the country. It is still one of the most celebrated national holidays in the country. 1938 expropriation and the creation of of uh, Pemex, ultimately. I think there is good recognition throughout the leadership. There is a growing recognition even among the broader political body. And now you even are beginning to see that recognition among the public. So I think what, what I see the leadership doing is this slow process of bringing the people along to understand why it is in, in their interest to allow others to come to the country and participate in the development of those resources. And there have been some start stops on some kind of small experiments as they continue to, I think, test, well, where, you know, what does it take? What does it take to get people interested? So my expectation is that's going to continue out of necessity uh, because they're not realizing the full potential of their own resources. They're in a position of having to import energy, which is pretty extraordinary if you look at their consumption versus what their resource capacity should be. So I think there is a clear commitment by the leadership to move this along, con continue this journey to the point that there will ultimately be participation. Whether it's something we'll do or not will depend on the terms and the conditions and, and what's on offer. But I think you'll see a continued effort to move the country in that direction. I'm told we have time for one more. Let me shift gears just a little bit and ask you this question. Would you please elaborate on Exxon's view of itself as an energy company rather than an oil and gas company and how that view affects decision making at your company? Well, uh, we are an energy company because 80% of the world's energy consumption is in the products that we deal with. Uh, but make no mistake, we are a petroleum and petrochemical company. Now we take a great deal of interest in understanding and from time to time participating at a certain level in the development of other sources of energy. Uh, we've been in the solar cell business. It didn't work out. We've not been in the wind business, but we watch it. Uh, we've been in biofuels. We've participated in a number of technology developments, and a lot of our technologists have collaborations with others who are investigating ways to meet this enormous challenge 
which confronts the world of supplying the energy that these economies need. Uh, if any of you visit our website or, or read our annual publication, uh, we once a year publish a, a book on our view of energy outlook, and it's built on what's happening with various economies around the world, what's happening with the demand sectors, what's happening with the fuel mix. And what we know from that work, and, and it hasn't uh, changed, uh, we pay very close attention to all the other alternatives. Obviously, because if there's a business opportunity, we'd look at it. And so we've looked at all of those alternatives, and we continue to carry out some research investigation on some of those. But we're fundamentally an oil and gas petrochemical company because that projection, if you look at our most recent, while we see enormous rates of growth in some of the alternatives that we know a lot of people have great aspirations for their contribution, but solar, which we think is going to grow by 20-fold over the next 30 years, even when it grows by 20-fold, it's going to account for 2 percent of global energy supply. Wind is going to grow 7-fold over the next 20, 25 years. And even so, it will account for 7 percent. So the challenge is that all the other energy options face is the sheer enormity of energy consumption to take care of this planet and to meet the aspirations that so many people around the world have to raise their standard of living, provide for their children, and give them a life that we have that they only dream of. And they deserve that right. And the only way they're going to get there is with petroleum, oil, natural gas, coal, and then a handful of these others. So that's the business we're in. We're in the energy business. That's largely all natural gas. Thank you. Thank you very much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.